So Philippians chapter two, if you have your Bible, be there. Um, we kind of had to split up chapter two. We got through half of it last week. We're gonna be in uh, chapter two, kind of verse 12 through 16. Um, but before we get there, I don't do this often because uh, I don't wanna like bore you with things that I think are really cool. But every now and then I come across one of these and just the study and the research preparing for this week that I'm like, no, 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 you need to know this one. So if you don't know, like the New Testament's written in Greek, right? So we take the Greek that it was written in and then we translate it here. And sometimes those are great translations and we can understand it. Other times we need a little help with, well, what did they really mean by that word? Like love, for example, a lot of different examples of love. We use that word very flippantly. There's another word that we talked about a couple weeks ago, doulos, right? That Greek word that we translate it slave, but it's so much more impactful and meaningful when you understand the Greek meaning for doulos. There's another word, if you've been around me long enough, that's absolutely my favorite. If like your pastor has a favorite Greek word, this one's mine, splagnizomai. And if you haven't heard me use that word, just stick around for a few more months. I promise it will show up. I try to preach that as much as I possibly can. It's a great word, but there's another one that we see in Philippians today that is so worth your while, gongusmas. And just Greek words sound cooler, gangusmas. And before I tell you what it means, let me tell you how it portrays itself. You know that you gangusmas when you woke up this morning and you walked outside and you said, ugh, gangusmas, it's cold. Afterwards today, maybe some of you, it's your Sunday ritual routine, you go to Costco. Maybe some of you do that. You go grocery shopping, you go to Costco, and you gangusmast when you went to Costco, or you're gonna go to Costco, and you see this long line of people, and you bring your three carts to the line, and you say, ugh, gangusmas. This is a way, this line is way too long. Some of you were watching the football games last weekend, which were incredible to watch last weekend. But one particular game, if you were cheering for a particular team, you said, ugh, gangusmas. The NFL needs to change their overtime rules. This is ridiculous. And he guesses on gangusmas. It's complaining, it's grumbling, it's, it's that murmur, it's that mumble. And it's great because that word sounds like it. You just walk around gangusmas, gangusmas, gangusmas. You're just kind of mad, you're angry, you're complaining. And what we see happen over time is gangusmas turns into an argument. That complaint that seemed innocent. Well, I was just complaining about the weather, just complaining about, well, this, this thing that this person said. All of a sudden, it can start to get very personal and it begins to impact relationships. Our relationship with God, because we begin to gangusmas about God. Wait, you want me to do what, God? You want me to humble myself like we read last week? Oh, gangusmas, that sounds so hard. <laughs> We begin to complain about God. We begin to complain about other people. We complain about the things that we wanna see changed in our world. And let's be honest, so much of that we cannot change. Do you know you are not responsible for changing the hearts of other people? You're not, and you can't. So when we feel helpless, we feel like the only thing that we can do is just gone gusmas. I'm just gonna complain about it. But like I said, the problem with complaints is it turns into more than just a complaint. All right, so this is why some people don't like sitting on the front row. I need some help here. So here you go. You're in my third seat back. Hold that one for me there. All right, so what happens after a lifestyle of gangusmas? It becomes so natural to just complain that those complaints start to turn into arguments. And so all of a sudden, you start to play a little bit of tug of war with the other people in your life now. 
That gongoosmas is not just, oh, it's cold outside, but it's like, oh, my wife, you have no idea what I have to put up with. And then, oh, my kids, do you know what they said the other day? And do you know the things that I have to do for them? And then they want money from me? Gongoosmas doesn't say enough. So we all of a sudden start to get in this tug of war with the relationships and the people in our life. Or like I said, sometimes that tug of war is even with God. We say, God, how could you do this? God, why are you asking of this? And we go back and forth and back and forth and it never solves anything. In fact, this gets to be exhausting. The more you gongusmas, the more tired and exhausting you will be. And life starts to lose that joy that we've seen in Philippians. That gongusmas over time will steal your joy away, which is why... In Philippians chapter two, verse 14, there's a verse. It's not even a full sentence yet. There's one verse that I'm gonna have us start with. Do everything without complaining and arguing. This is the point where if you would like to exit because you don't wanna hear the rest of this, I don't wanna hear you gone goosemossing about my sermon. You are welcome to go. Read this with me, because this is important. It's so simple, but so impactful. Read it with me. Do everything without complaining and arguing. Oh my goodness. If that was easy to just read it and live it, then this would be the shortest message, shortest church service you've ever been part of. But there's so much in there because it is difficult. There's something in us that doesn't want to give in to this. Because we want things our way. We want things to work our way. And like we talked a little bit last week about humility, like we're selfish individuals by nature. We want things our way, the way we want it, when we want it. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. We are gonna take that one verse, do everything without complaining and arguing. But I want us to ask a really important question because this is gonna help us actually like try to live this way. It's the question, why? Because Paul's not just saying, do everything without complaining, arguing, because I said so. The because I said so does not work. It works for a little bit with your kids, but then all of a sudden it changes, doesn't it? And you start getting the why question. Well, why? Why? And there needs to be a compelling reason for me to consider changing the way that I live. So for us this morning, if you're a believer then this is the life that you have signed up for. If you're not a believer, this is the life that you will be signing up for, hopefully, as God leads your heart. But there's a big reason of why. Why is this so important? Why does Paul, the writer here, in writing to an early church in Philippi, why does he make such a big deal about complaining and arguing? In order to answer the why question, we need to do something. This is a good Bible study tool for you. You might've even heard this verse before, but I would ask, do you know before it? And do you know after it, right? The Bible's full of like those coffee cup verses, right? Where it's like, you just see them at the Christian bookstore. It's like, oh, that's super great. And you're like, but did you read before that? Like, it doesn't mean what you think it means if you don't read it in context. So do everything with complaining and arguing. If we say, well, why is this such a big deal? We need to look at what Paul wrote first before it. We're gonna look before this verse, but then we're also gonna look after it. And I believe it's gonna help you with the why question. Why should I live my life without complaining and arguing? Let's try to answer why. So to do that, let's go back to verse 12. We're gonna see the section beforehand. 
Again, why is this a big deal? Verse 12, notice what Paul writes. And again, to give you context, if you've not been with us this month as we're going through Philippians, Paul is in prison writing to this early church, the early church of Philippi. So it'd be like him writing a letter to here, the local church of Dawson, and helping us understand who we are in Christ, what it's like to be part of the community of Christ, we'd call that the church, and then how we live our lives because of it. That's really all he's doing. And there's so much joy. That's a big theme for him throughout this book. And as we said, the complaining and the arguing will steal that away. So he's trying to help people navigate the why question. Why should I live this way? Why should I even bother? Because that's hard work. You ever tried to go a whole day without complaining and arguing? Exactly. (laughs) So here's why it's so important. Verse 12. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. He's talking about integrity. Notice this next part. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Now, this is a, this is a verse that we need to be really, really careful with. Because if you just kind of half-heartedly read through it, you're going to probably misread it. So be, let me be super, super clear here. It says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. It does not say work for your salvation. Not if you understand the difference there. If not, I'm gonna explain it. (laughs) It is not work for it. God has already done that for you. There's nothing that you can do to earn or to deserve your salvation. That's what he has already done. In fact, what Paul is really helping with is he's helping us understand the relational dynamic between us and God. Like it is a relationship. Relationships are two-way streets, meaning God is responsible for some things, but then he also gives us responsibility for some things. There's things that we depend on God for in this relationship, but then there's other things that God says, no, that's yours. You own that part of this relationship. So it's a two-way street. So what I want you to understand is what's God's role and what's our role? What is he responsible for and what are you and I responsible for in our relationship with God? This could be a whole thing on its own, but we're gonna do this pretty quick. If you ever have questions on this, man, hit me up, talk with me. I'd love to walk you through this more in more detail. But basically those two categories, what God's responsible for, what we're responsible for. Two main things in God's court. The first one is what God did. Then it's gonna be what God is doing. And then for us, it's how we live that out. So let's break those down. The first one, the work that God did for you, you didn't do anything to earn this or deserve this. The work God did for you was to save you. The saving work that was done through his one and only son, Jesus Christ on the cross, the empty tomb, that is what God did for you. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it. In fact, in Ephesians, it speaks to this. Paul writes to another church and he says this, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So God did something for us. He gave us grace. He gave us a gift of salvation. That's the work that God did for us something that only God can do, something that is his responsibility, not ours, is salvation. Then the second part that God is responsible for is what he's doing in your heart and in my heart. The work God does in you is to change you. 
And Paul even alludes to this, what we just read. We're to work hard to show the results of our salvation. Look, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So when we come into a relationship with God, he changes our position. When we accept him, like Ephesians says, when we believe for the first time, he moves us from an enemy of God to adopted by God. He changes our position from lost to found, from dead to alive, from sinner to righteous. That's what God does for you, but he's not done yet. It's not just, yay, you're saved, end of story. No, it's, yay, you're saved, now we're just gonna get started. Now your new life begins. That's why we use the phrase, a born again Christian, your new life begins. And God begins to work in you, growing you and developing you. The work that God is doing in you through the work of the Holy Spirit is to change you. We see that in Galatians chapter four. Paul writes this. He says that God sent him, talking about Jesus, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could, look, adopt us as his very own children. So that's what Jesus did. That's what he did for us. Look what happens next, verse six. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call Abba Father. In other words, that relationship has changed because our heart begins to change. If you keep reading through Galatians, get to chapter five, we get the fruits of the spirit. The Holy Spirit produces these in us. He's changing our hearts. Romans chapter 12, go look at that a little bit later. Speaks to how through the Holy Spirit, our mind is even changed, how we think because God is doing a work in us. Those are things that only God can do. So in our relationship with God, he did the work for us to save us. He's doing the work through his Holy Spirit in us to change us. But now comes our responsibility. Our responsibility is what Paul is trying to get across to the early church here. What are you gonna do with that? So yes, God saved you through his son, Jesus' sacrifice. And yes, God gave us the Holy Spirit that is moving in us and changing us to be who he desires us to be. But what are we going to choose to do with that? What I would say, and I think what Paul is trying to get us, get us to this place, is to live out what God, God has done for you and in you what he has already done, what he is doing. We now choose to show that. We choose to talk about that. We choose to live that out. That's why Paul is saying these words, work hard to show the results of your salvation, what God has done and what he is doing. It's now in our court, it's our responsibility to choose to live that out. Here's a terrible example on how to explain this. So there's over 50 million Americans that are members at a gym. Most of those happen in January, in fact. And some of you might be part of that. Like, yes, January, I'm gonna get healthy. I'm gonna change how I, how I feel about myself, change how I look, I'm gonna change my health. So we go and we sign up to be a member of this gym. But you might've learned something over this past month. January's almost over. You might've learned that even though you might have signed up for the gym, Signing up for the gym doesn't make your muscles grow, does it? Well, you might be super frustrated. Could you imagine going to the gym manager and says that this is not working? I signed up. I am a member of this gym and look at me. Nothing's happened. And I would imagine the manager of the gym would say, well, how often are you working out? And you're like, well, that's not part of it. 
You told me if I signed up for the gym, then I would become healthier. I would become fill in the blank. No, 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 no. Because there's a big difference between being a member of a gym and being a member of a gym that works out regularly. Those are two very different things. Now, can you be somebody that, that is a member of a gym and never work out? Absolutely. I promise you, they will never revoke your membership. <laughs> they love, in fact, <laughs> maybe on some level, right? So you don't lose your membership if you don't work out, but you do miss out on who you could become. That's the point. Does your salvation get revoked? No. Is God gonna stop working on you? No, God's not done. He's not going to be done with you. But if we don't choose to live out what God has done and is doing, then yes, we miss out on who he wants us to become, on who he desires us to be. That's where we are responsible, to choose each and every morning we wake up and in each and every conversation and each and every relationship and each and every struggle and each and every hardship, go through the list of your life. We then choose whether we are going to live that out or not. So then we get to the verse we started with. We recognize that God has done something for us, that God is currently in the midst of everything, doing something in us to change us. And then here, then Paul says, so I want you to do something to live this out. He said, here's the life that this looks like. Here's how you work hard to show the results of your salvation. Verse 14, where we started. So do everything without complaining and arguing. If God has truly saved you and you believe that with all your heart, and if God is truly working in you through the work of his Holy Spirit and you believe that with all of your heart, then don't gongusmas. You don't have anything to complain about and argue about because now you are living a different life that lives out what God has done and is doing. Remember I told you you have to look at the before and the after of that verse to really understand the why. So why do we not complain? Why do we not argue? Well, because of what God has done for us, because of the grace that he's given us, because of the forgiveness that he's given us, because he's not done with us yet. And we are a work in progress just like everybody else. So that does help us answer why should we live a life that is not full of complaining and is not full of arguing, but there's still another part to it. That's why you read before and after. So let's finish the sentence. Do everything without complaining and arguing the next thought, verse 15, so that, and those are such big words, in result of, here's why, so that no one can criticize you, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. Real quick, just, we're going to talk about it here in a second, but just so you know, um, when it says hold firmly to the word of life, he's not talking about the word of God as in scripture. He's talking about the word of life as in the word became flesh. Read chapter, John chapter one, that's Jesus. See, and in the life that we live, we hold so tightly to all the things that we want. Thus the tug of war, thus complaining, gone gusmas and arguing and really what Paul is saying, like, no, only hold tightly to Jesus. But the reason why here is so important, that verse 16, so that, here's the reason why we do this, so that you would be like bright lights in a dark world. 
a member of our church, they were telling me about a trip they took a little bit ago, about a couple years ago, and there's this town in Colorado called Westcliff, Westcliff, Colorado, and people will travel from all over the United States, and I'm sure even around the world, to show up to this little town in Colorado called Westcliff for one reason, that. It's the stars. People travel a great distance to Westcliff, Colorado, just so they can see those stars. Now, those are the exact same stars that we have here in North Georgia, but they don't look like that. The reason they don't look like that was because it's so much darker there. No light pollution. It's actually considered a dark community, which allows those lights, those stars in the sky to just be absolutely brilliantly bright. And people travel from all over to see something bright. Paul is getting the same point across do everything without complaining and arguing so that, Christian, you would be that bright light in a very, very dark world. We do live in a dark world. We live in a broken world. The problem, the biggest problem that we face as a community, as a country, as a world, and most certainly as individuals, you know what our biggest problem is? Sin. Sin is what separates us from God. Sin is where our selfishness is rooted in. And so Paul is saying, if you recognize what God's done for you and you recognize what God is doing in you and when you choose to live a life where you're different, people notice and people will see something different about you. And that life that we choose to live as Christians is a life that constantly points back to Jesus, that points back to the creator. So why should we live a life where we do everything without complaining and arguing? So that we can point people to Jesus, bottom line. So that we can be different. Complaining and arguing is so common in our world today that of course nobody thinks twice to complain I mean, I even caught myself do it. Like seriously, I walked out this morning, I was teasing about the cold, but yeah, I went to go start my car. I was like, man, it's so cold. And I'm like, man, I'm talking about complaining today. <laughs> I mean, it just happens. It's so natural because, well, there's sin in our lives. But what would happen if our lives looked so radically different than what's so radically normal in our world? We would be bright lights in a very dark world. Let's go back to the tug of war for a second. Let me use you one more time. So here's what I think we can begin to, to maybe think through as we think about all the things we've gotten goosemoss over and we argue, and we said this earlier, the complaining turns into arguing and that arguing begins to pull, pull back and forth. And really the, the whole point of complaining or arguing is so that there would be change. We complain about something because we don't like it the way that it is. So we wanna see it changed. And when we get in this kind of a tug of war battle, it's not me that's gonna change. Oh no, I'm complaining about you and I'm gonna argue with you because I want to pull you to my side. I want you to change. I want you to adjust, but I'm staying put. 
And then the other person says the exact same thing, which is why we end up with marriages like this and we end up with parent relationships like this and work cultures start to turn into this because we want something to change, but we're not willing to change. What's the goal of this? Is the goal, let me give a few thoughts on this one, a couple of thoughts. Is the goal of just getting your way or is the goal getting them to Jesus? Because if the goal is getting your way, then by all means, pull harder. If the goal is getting them to Jesus, I don't think this is the way to go. Is the goal getting what you want or is it growing in your faith? If the goal is to get what you want, then yes, buckle down, double down and pull harder. But if the goal is growing your faith, may I suggest drop the rope. I'm not complaining anymore. I'm not arguing anymore. Doesn't mean I agree. Doesn't mean that I've settled. But I'm going to choose to be a bright light in a dark world that causes the rest of the world to say, why'd you drop the rope? Pick up the rope. No, I'm not going to pick up the rope. Why aren't you going to pick up the rope? Because of what Jesus did in my life. Because of what God did for me because of what God's doing in me. Because of the love that he's given me, I'm gonna show that love. Because of the grace that he's given me, I'm gonna show that grace. You drop the rope. That's the only way I know to live out what we're told here, to do everything with, without complaining and arguing. I don't know how you do that if you hold tightly to yourself and to what you want and to what you are hoping for and what you want to see changed. I don't know how you can do that unless you drop the rope. Because what we talked about just briefly a second ago, when you drop the rope, that allows you to do something else. When you let go of one thing, it allows you to hold tightly to something else. Verse 16, hold firmly to the word of life. Hold firmly to Jesus. So we drop the rope of our complaining and our arguing and our debating so that we can hold tightly to Jesus. We let go of some of our own selfish desires so that we can hold tighter to Jesus. You drop the rope so you can hold firmly and tightly to the word of life. Now, let me kind of just have a, for some of you, this might be clarifying. For some of you, it just might be helpful. Am I suggesting that we are silent on all things? No. Should we be an advocate for the hurting and the weak? Absolutely. Do we need to fight for what's right? Do we need to stand up for the truth that's in God's word? 100%. As long as we do it in a way that is not with complaining and arguing, that's where we get into trouble. Well, I'm doing what's right and I'm saying what's right and I'm speaking the truth, but is it in love? See, those are not separate. It's not two sides of a coin. It's truth and love. It's both the same all the time. Scripture tells us that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. Not some grace and some truth. Not grace this time, truth this time. Both, 100%. So yes, we most certainly stand up for what's right and we, we tell the truth in love and we stand up and speak out against what's wrong to fight for those that can't fight for themselves, but we do so with this in mind. Do everything without complaining and arguing. That is what allows us to be those bright lights in a very dark world. We started this whole thing with the question, why? 
Why do that? Why live that way? And I've said it several times and I'll say it again so we're clear. Because of what God has done for you on the cross, because of what he is doing through the power of the Holy Spirit in your hearts and in your minds, then we choose to live that out, to work hard. And it is hard work, guys. (laughs) To drop the rope in your marriage, to drop the rope with your kids at times so it's not just arguing for arguing's sake. Doesn't mean they get what they want, no. But there's a right way, according to scripture, to have that conversation and to lead them and to guide them, to parent them, to do all things without gongusmas. That leads to arguments, that leads to a big old tug of war where it's about getting my way instead of getting you to Jesus. 1 John chapter four sums it up brilliantly. 1 John chapter four, verse 19. We love each other because he first loved us. You're like, Brian, if you just said that at the beginning, we didn't have to sit here for this whole time. That's probably true. (laughs) We love, why? Because he first loved us. If you study that idea, and that's pretty prevalent in just church as it should be, Jesus tells us to love God with all of our heart, heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second command is like it, to love your neighbor, finish it, as yourself. Yeah, it's this whole idea of loving God and loving one another. In the New Testament, once you get past the Gospels, like what we're reading here in Philippians and Ephesians and Galatians and all those other letters that Paul and others wrote, it speaks a lot to those two things. How do we love God? How do we also love one another? In fact, and if you've been around, we did this a couple years ago. I thought this was helpful to bring this back. Um, if you were to do a study on where in the New Testament are we told to love one another and how that kind of fleshes out, here's a list. This is not all of them by any means, but if you were to look for all the one another's in, New, in the New Testament scripture, this is a pretty, pretty decent list. Again, it's not all of them, but this is how we are to kind of live that out. You can even see, be at peace with one another. Live in harmony goes together. Devoted to, patient with. Don't grumble against one another. Look, gongusmas isn't just in Philippians. It's also in James. So you see these all over. This is what it looks like to the New Testament authors. Here's how we begin to live that out, to love God and to love others because of what he's done and what he's doing in us. But for me, I take it one step further because this is helpful for me personally. Maybe it's helpful for you because you can look at that and like, yeah, we're supposed to do that. And yes, we need to do that. And yes, we need Christians that'll live that way. And yes, we need to be a church like that. So let's get real personal. If you go to the next part, what would it look like for those one another's to start to get personal to you? What if those one another's started to have other names in them? Let me show you this next slide and this will help you out. Take a picture of this one. We'll post this a little bit later. Who do you need to be at peace with? Who do you need to be devoted to? Who do you need to honor above yourself? Who do you need to drop the rope with and live in harmony with? Who do you need to stop passing judgment on? Who do you need to encourage? Who do you need to serve? Who do you need to bear with? That means we're not getting along right now, but I'm gonna bear with you still because of what God has done for me and what he's doing in me. Who do I need to be patient with? Who do I need to be kind and compassionate to? Who do I need to submit to? Who do I need to forgive? Why forgive? Because Christ forgave me. Who do I need to spur on, inspire and encourage towards doing the right things? Who do I need to stop gongusmasing about? Who do I need to pray for? Who do I need to offer hospitality to? There's a lot longer list, but that's all that would fit on one screen. Bottom line, why do we choose to live the life that we're told to live? Because yes, it's your choice on how you choose to live. You can walk out of here and gun goosemoss all day. God's not gonna stop you. 
but you can choose to not gangusmas because of what God has done for you and what he is doing in you. And your life is a reflection of him to point other people to him, to be a bright light in a sinful, broken, dark world. We have the opportunity, Christian, to point people to Jesus by how we live our life. And it points to what he's doing and it points to what he has done. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for what you have done for us. May we never miss the, the greatness and the grandness of what you have already done for us that we could never do on our own. That salvation, we only receive that because of what you did for us on the cross through your son, Jesus. We only have forgiveness because of his sacrifice and his resurrection. We only have grace because you are willing to give it. We have hope because of the promise you've given us. So thank you for what you have done. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts, that you don't just save us and leave us. You save us and walk with us and move in us and, and change us from the inside out. So God, would you continue to do that work in us through your Holy Spirit? Change our hearts, change our minds, change our perceptions change our desires, our passions, our wants. And then may we be willing to put in the work to not just be a member of your family, but a member of your family that works hard to show other people who you are. Not because us working hard gives us any more acceptance and love from you. It's actually the opposite. It's the love that you have for us. The way that we live is just our way of saying thank you because you first loved us. That's why we love one another. So may our lives be different, like shining lights in a dark world because of what you've already done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.